It's always nice to spend time over communion rather than it being something that comes at the end of a service and can sometimes feel a little bit rushed or we can have half a mind on the fact that the, the, the chicken's going to burn if we don't get home soon or, or we've got to nip out to go and do the coffee or whatever it might be. It's nice just to pause and just to have proper time to focus on communion. But it's also important that we focus on God's word and that's what we're going to shift to now as we continue in the, the series, The Desert and the Parched Land. And this week you'll see from the slide that the title of the sermon is From Obstinance to Obedience, which is a title that probably could be given to many of us. Many of us find that we're obstinate at first, that no matter how many times Christian friends or, or family, maybe parents or whoever it might be, tell us about the goodness of God, about the love of Jesus, about the importance of faith, we obstinately refuse because the bulk of people in the world tell us that it's empty, worthless, a fairy tale, a crutch for the weak. And so we obstinately refuse to investigate our own personal relationship with God until there comes a point where something happens and something, whether it's a huge event or whether it's just a, a change of attitude in us, something happens that causes us to begin to investigate God for ourselves. And as soon as we start doing that, we begin to realize that God is there, that God is a lot more plausible than we ever imagined, that there is more and more evidence for Jesus. And we come to begin our journey to knowing God. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we come across a man called Naaman. Now, the sermon today was going to attempt to go through the whole of 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to keep an eye on the clock and we're not going to probably cover the entire chapter, but it is a chapter that is so rich in lessons, lessons about the way that God uses people, the way that, that we can sometimes be used by God without even realising it. But it also teaches lessons about the pitfalls that we can fall into if we fail to recognize when God is working. So to begin with, we'll just have a, a quick overview of the political situation. We've got a map, and you might recognize this map. I hope you might recognize this map. This was a map that I used in, um, at the end of November. Um, when we had a, a sermon looking at Isaiah and one of the prophecies about the coming of Jesus and, and um, I used this map then. So this kind of feels like a school teacher saying, come along, we did this last term. Um, but what I wanted to show here is in the, right at the top of that map, you'll see right um, in the top right-hand corner, you've got the words Assyrian Empire. And then just below the words Assyrian Empire, you've got a star with Damascus written on it. So that's where Damascus is, the city of Damascus. And then you'll see Damascus falls in a blue area, which is the kingdom of Aram Damascus. And on the western side, that kingdom has borders with Israel. 
Now, at this time, at the time that the events that are recorded in 2 Kings chapter 5 took place, there was a conflict going on. A conflict going on between the kingdom of Aram Damascus and the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was huge and it was brutal. When, when, they, when they had someone stand against them, they didn't take prisoners. Well, actually, no, they did take prisoners, but they then skinned them alive. That was sort of one of their, one of their trademarks, if you like. They were, they were not a pleasant enemy to have. And so when the kingdom of Aram Damascus found itself at war with the Assyrian Empire, they asked Israel for help, and Israel refused. They didn't want to get into that conflict. And so the king of Aram Damascus tried to provoke Israel, tried to, to sort of force their hand a bit. And Naaman, who we read about in 2 Kings chapter 5, he was a commander. He was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. So he's like the second most powerful person in that that kingdom. And we're told an interesting description of Naaman. Now bearing in mind, he was not from Israel. He was not one of God's chosen people. He was not Jewish But we're told he was a great man in the sight of his master, the king, and highly regarded. Hear this. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. So this man who is nothing to do, he's not a Jew. He's not one of God's people. He did not keep God's law. He worshipped other gods. He led an, an army who, at times, were in conflict with Israel. And yet, even back then in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, way back, we see the Lord had given him victory. So everything that's about to happen in 2 Kings chapter 5, God's already gone before. So God's given victories to, to Naaman. We're told he was a valiant soldier, but he had a problem. He had a skin condition. Some translations call it leprosy. Others say it, was, um, it, it wasn't leprosy, but it was a similar kind of skin ailment. But we'll, we'll go with leprosy this morning um, because that, that kind of gives an idea of the severity. This was a, a skin condition which was going to eat him up. It was going to mean that um, once it spread and became more visible on his body, it was going to mean social, socially he would be an outcast. It would mean that people wouldn't want to go near him he wouldn't be able to lead his troops. He wouldn't be able to, to have, um, have all the, the, the status and the position that he had previously enjoyed. It's a pretty desperate situation. Having leprosy or any similar type of condition in those days, it was a death sentence. It was a slow, long, painful death sentence. And so despite his status and being well-liked, and despite having been given victories in in battle, he was in a pretty desperate situation. Now, as I say, to try and provoke Israel into joining the conflict against Assyria, the king of Aram had, had instructed Naaman to send bands of soldiers, raiding parties across the border into Israel to plunder different villages, take what wealth they could, what livestock. And as we find out, they also took slaves They'd taken a young captive girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Now, this girl plays a pivotal role here. We never even know her name. She's mentioned in just a couple of verses in Scripture, and yet she turns the tide of a whole whole political situation. She, she, She changes the life of the second most powerful man in the kingdom of Aram Damascus. 
This young captive girl, she'd been taken by a raiding party from Israel. So she'd been taken from her family, taken from her home, taken from her people. She was now serving the, queen, uh, sorry, the, the wife of the general of the king of Aram's army. So she's a servant girl. She had every right to be bitter, to be angry. Every right to be saying, I'm glad he's got this skin, I'm glad he's got leprosy, this skin condition. I'm glad that he's going to have a slow, painful death that he's going to know what it's like to be lonely and to be outcast. I'm glad, because that's what he's done to me. She could have gone all self-righteous, and, and she, could have, she could have looked and said, that's God's judgment, that is, huh. But she doesn't. Instead, this servant girl puts aside everything that she's suffered, everything that has happened to her. And she says to her mistress, to Naaman's wife, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. He would cure him. And she must have been so sincere in what she said, and she must, have, she must have conducted herself in such a way that she had good standing in the eyes of Naaman's wife because she listens to this servant girl. She doesn't say, don't be ridiculous, how dare you? You're claiming that, that your God can do something that our gods can't. She doesn't have that attitude. Instead, she says, I'm going to speak to my husband. And so she goes and she speaks to Naaman and she tells him what the servant girl has said. Naaman, we have already been told, is a, is a, is a good man. He's a likable man. He's the sort of person, I think we all know a Naaman, someone who seems to, seems to have all the qualities, all the qualities of, of good judgment and kind character and generosity, decency, upstanding. Someone you think, you've got one piece of the puzzle missing, and that's Jesus. If you had Jesus, my goodness, you would, you would be amazing. That's the one bit that's missing. And I kind of think that, that Naaman was that sort of person. Because again, he doesn't condemn this servant girl. He doesn't put her to death or beat her or, or just ignore her. He goes to the king and he says, hey, listen, um, this servant girl from Israel that we took in a raiding party a little while ago, she tells me that there is a man in Israel who can cure my condition. I want to go and see him. There must have been a time of peace between the two countries. The, the, the provocative raids must have stopped for a while because otherwise this wouldn't have been an option. But the king writes a letter to the king of Israel recommending Naaman and saying he comes to be cured. And so Naaman takes a huge amount of wealth with him, silver and gold, packs it all up, takes, a, takes some troops with him, and they go into Israel. And they get to the king of Israel, and he receives this letter. And he's furious. Because he takes this letter and thinks that the king of Aram Damascus is trying to provoke him. He says, how dare he? How dare he try and provoke me? Does he think that I can decide who lives and dies? Does he think that I've got the power to, to cure illnesses? This is, a, this is provocation. This is, this is him trying to, trying to force me into an impossible situation. He's asking me to do something that he knows full well I cannot do. And so the king, the king is angry and he rips his clothes. And You remember from last week... This was in the days of Elisha, and Elisha was God's chosen prophet in Israel. And Elisha, one of his men, was in the king's palace at the time, and he sees the king with torn robes. And he finds out what the problem is, and he says, well, send Naaman to Elisha. He's a prophet. He'll, 
He'll help him. You're right, king, you can't decide who lives and who dies, but God can, and Elisha is God's chosen prophet. And so Naaman is directed to go out and to see, to see Elisha. Naaman turns up at Elisha's gate. He's got soldiers, and he's got all this wealth. He's got gold and silver, and he turns up. He's a general of an army. He's used to leading thousands of troops. He's used to loyalty and to orders being carried out just like that. But instead, he turns up to see Elisha, and as far as Naaman's concerned, the guy's rude. Just downright rude, there is no other word. Elisha turns up at his gate, announces who he is, and Elisha doesn't even bother to come out and see him. He's travelled all this way. It was, it's around about, estimations, are, it's around about 100 miles. If, he, if, uh, if Naaman had left Damascus, the capital city, having spoken to the king and got the letter, travelling into, into Israel, it's estimated that the region where these events took place, it was a journey of around 100 miles. That's a long way before the days of modern transport. And then you turn up at the gate and the person you come to see doesn't even bother to acknowledge you. He just sends a servant out. Naaman's furious. He's even more furious when the sermon says what he has to do. He's told, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. Naaman again. He says, I thought, I thought that he would surely come out and see me and stand on the call of the name of his Lord and wave his hand over, over the spot and cure me of leprosy. I was expecting a sort of abracadabra, sort of pazam. There you go, look what God's done, wow. But he's not even come to see me. Your prophet, your man of God, he's not even bothering to come and see me. And in fact, he's telling me to go into a stinking, filthy river dunk myself seven times publicly. No, I'm not having that. No way. He says, and not Abana and Parfa, the, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. I could wash in them and be cleansed. It wasn't even worth coming. So he turns and he goes off in a rage. Now remember that, that servant girl who triggered this whole series of events. She's not even named She's a mere servant girl. She's been a victim of, of, of a, a raid on Israel. Well, there's another servant here. Naaman's servants, who again, we know nothing about them. They're not named. They're never mentioned again in Scripture. And yet they too play the next pivotal role in this story. They go after Naaman when he's gone off in a rage. And they say, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing... Would you not have done it? So if he'd told you to go and run barefoot across a lake full of crocodiles, James Bond style, then wouldn't you have done it? Or if he'd told you to go and, and, and fight some mythical creature somewhere, then wouldn't you have done it? So what's the difference? He's told you to do something that doesn't involve taking your own life in your hands. It doesn't put you at any risk. You've got nothing to lose. Why wouldn't you do this? They say, how much more then, when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Naaman calms down, listens to them. We've heard already he was a, a reasonable man, a decent man. And so he swallows his pride a little bit. He says, okay, you're right. What is there to lose? 
And so we're told in verse 14, he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. He's cured. It's done. It seems so simple. It seemed too easy. It felt like he was being mocked because this huge, huge event, it didn't rest on a huge, huge action. It rested on obedience. Suddenly we see at that moment when, when he's listened to his servant, when he's, he's swallowed his pride, he's got over his rage, the obstinance turns to obedience. And that's when God works. That's when God works. This story was a highly offensive story when Jesus referred to it in the synagogue. It's interesting when we look at Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus teaching, preaching in the synagogue. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. You'll remember that story that we covered a couple of weeks ago. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. That was so offensive to the listeners in the synagogue that they carried Jesus out and they wanted to kill him there and then. He managed to escape and went on to do other things. But the idea of Naaman, the enemy of Israel, someone who, who, who wasn't, wasn't pure, wasn't one of God's chosen, the idea that he was chosen by God to be cleansed in this way, to have his leprosy cured when there were people amongst the, the, the Jewish race who suffered from leprosy and who died and who didn't have this, this healing, to have that pointed out in a synagogue when Jesus did that, that was offensive. We must be careful not to fall into the same trap. You see, yes, our salvation rests on us choosing to follow Jesus. That is the crux for our personal faith. But we must not be sucked into thinking that when other people have good fortune, it's just luck. Actually, God can use non-believers, non-Christians. God can change lives. He can use those people. Sometimes, as painful as it might be, God can heal those people. And we have people in our own midst who we pray for and pray for and pray for and they suffer and then they die. And that's really hard. It's really hard until we look back at Scripture and see that it's all part of what it means to have faith in our God. That servant girl never knew the pivotal role that she played in this story. 
Naaman's servants never knew the pivotal role they played in the story. But Naaman looks at his skin as he comes up out of the pool and he's in no doubt at all. He goes back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. And suddenly we see, we see that God's been working. God has been doing something amazing throughout all of these events. So what is God doing here? Well, to begin with, God has been preparing the path. We see this right at the start of this passage. We're told that the Lord was the one who had given Naaman victory. Naaman, through the victories that he had, he had been given by God, he had climbed to the rank of general, the second most powerful man in the whole of the kingdom. God had done that. God had been preparing the path. The girl, the servant girl who had been taken in tragic circumstances, she'd been taken captive, prisoner, taken away from everything that she knew, all the security and the love and the protection of her family. She'd been taken to a foreign land to work in a foreign regime, maybe forced to worship foreign gods, we don't know, but it would have been pretty miserable, but she was part of God's plan. When we find ourselves in awful circumstances... We can think of this servant girl and we can say, we know, we know that sometimes God looks at us and he knows our limits better than we do. And we might think our limits are here, but actually God knows that we can endure stuff right out there. And it will take us out of our comfort zone. And it will put us into a situation where we think, oh, why has God done this to me? What have I done to deserve this? And actually the answer is you've been faithful. You've been faithful to him. And he's recognising that your faith can take a battering and it won't submit. And so when we go through these awful times and people might say, where's your God now? Well, your God's right there. Where was this servant girl's God? He was using her faith. He was using her faith to change the life of the second most powerful man in that huge kingdom that we saw on the map earlier. That's what God was doing. But God is also humbling the high. Naaman was a man who was used to commanding thousands of troops, sending them into battle. He had people trusting him with their lives. And when he's told to go and dunk himself in the River Jordan, I want to do something better than that. I, I want to have a challenge. No, I want to go through some sort of, some sort of um, a series of challenges and prove myself to earn this. But God says you can't earn it. You need to be humbled. You need to swallow your pride. You need to get over yourself. God humbles the high. And when he's humbled them, then suddenly he builds them up again in his mould, in the way that he wishes them to be built up. And God uses the willing. The servant girl is willing to share God with her mistress and so Naaman, despite everything she's been through. Elisha's servant, when he, when he sees the king having ripped his clothes and cried out, I, this, is, this is provocation, he was willing to say, your majesty, send this guy to Elisha, he can help. Naaman's servants were willing to go after him when he went off in a rage and to calm him down and to suggest that he gives it a go. 
God uses the willing. God still does those three things today. It can be so frustrating being a Christian sometimes because we talk about a God of love and a God of power and a God who, who cares for us each individually and it's great and it's true but then we find ourselves going through awful circumstances and so often that's when people drift away from church. People find comfort in other things. Suddenly faith can feel quite empty and you can feel abandoned by God but God is right there with you. Do not give up. Do not walk away when the going gets tough. Because that's when we need God the most. And that's often when God can use us the most. When we're going through the desert and the parched land. When we're suffering and we're struggling. And we're feeling that we've poured everything out and we're empty. That's when God can use us the most. And so that's when we need our faith more than ever. And so Naaman comes back to Elisha. And he says, now that I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. Accept a gift. The temptation here for me is to carry on in this passage and in about three minutes try and cover the whole lot. But I'm not. I'm going to stop there. And we're going to come back to this passage next week. Because the second half of 2 Kings chapter 5 teaches us a whole new set of lessons about God and about our attitude to God. So far we've seen a powerful general being humbled. We have seen a servant girl being used by God. We have seen so many different people, many of whom aren't even named, speaking into this, this conversation. The power here has been given to the powerless in society. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we must always humble ourselves and recognize that God is the one who is truly in control. No matter how desperate circumstances may feel, God is the one who is in control. No matter how far from our comforts and, and familiar things we might be, God is still with you and still in control. No matter how tempting it might be to, to demand that our own way of doing things is followed, our own expectations are met, actually, we must always remember the importance of swallowing our pride and reaching out to God. And saying, Lord, I'm your servant. And so, and so we're going to leave it there for this week. And next week we're going to do the second half of 2 Kings chapter 5. And I, I encourage you, if you have time this week, even if you don't have time, find time to read 2 Kings chapter 5. Come this week, for next week, familiar with the second half of 2 Kings chapter 5. And having read through the first half as well, and identified 
any other lessons that God teaches you through this incredible chapter? But now we're going to give thanks to our wonderful, amazing, loving God. Let's pray. Lord, earlier on in this service, we shared together communion and we recognized the gift that Jesus gave us. But Father, we recognize as we've gone through the first half of this chapter that recounts this wonderful story, Lord, we recognize the way that that you have used so many people throughout Scripture. We recognize, Lord, that status and wealth and power, they mean nothing in your eyes because you've created each and every one of us and you love each and every one of us and you use you use us in ways that we cannot even comprehend Father we thank you for the unnamed heroes that we've read about this morning the ones who were bold enough to speak into the lives of their leaders the ones who were gracious enough to put aside their own suffering, their own experience, and instead to demonstrate your love. Lord, we thank you that that you don't run an exclusive club open only to a few but instead your grace and your power and your mercy extends to all people. Father Father God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I'm going to call the band to come up and lead our final worship song this morning. We're just going to close with, I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind, because I know there's peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. Jesus.
God, we thank you for what we've heard this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together in your presence to share your love and your goodness. And Father, as we go out into the world this week, may we speak Jesus into every situation, into every conversation, into every dark corner, Lord. May we be the ones that shine your light Father, bless us, we pray. Equip us and empower us. May we be bold 
And may we remember that you never leave us, you never forsake us, and you never give up on us. Because we are your people, and we go in your name. And in that name we say together, Amen. 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 Please do join us for refreshments afterwards, but have a blessed week. There's also the prayer team available if anyone feels this morning that there's something they want to talk about or just spend some time in here. And there'll be people from the prayer team and Tom as well at, at the front. We're going to sing one final song, which you're welcome to stay and enjoy or just